Hello, this is Haley Nauman, and you're listening to Podcast Mabi Baby. That's how the French say it, in case you weren't aware. What's up? I am sitting in my bedroom. I have to close the curtains when I record because I get it in my head that the sound is going to bounce off the windows and make it sound worse. I'm not sure if it matters or does anything, but it does make me feel like Dracula. So that's pretty cool. I spent the morning when I cleaning my apartment and... I got it what we like to call house party clean, which means more than just kind of your cursory tidy up or even your casual wipe down, but like a full hands and knees scrub the way you would for like a house party. Am I the only person who does that before I have people to my house? It's not like just as someone's dropping in, but if I'm having a party, my house looks like the best it's ever looked. And then like 12 hours later, it looks the worst it's ever looked. I feel like that's just like the circle of life. But anyway, Obviously not having anybody over to my house, but I did clean the shit out of my apartment. I spent the the last couple days like laid up on the couch because I had really horrible period cramps. And I spent most of that time feeling kind of guilty for laying on the couch. But whenever I do that, and it doesn't even need to be related to my period, but whenever I just lay around, the day after I do that, I'm like the best version of myself. <laughs> so I try to remember that. Like, I mean, even better version of myself than I would have been if I'd just been, like, mildly productive for two days in a row instead of, like, being horribly unproductive for two days in a row and then, like, being some kind of superhero the next day. Anyway, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. I'm trying to just sort of free ball it on this podcast a little more because I feel like otherwise I'm, like, reading off a script, and that's not fun. And um, I'm trying to get more comfortable in front of a mic. So maybe monologuing will help me shake off my mic jitters. Okay, today, what are we here for? Newsletter number 20. It's called Who Are You Online? And similar to my anecdote about being lazy and then sort of finding my energy afterward, I was procrastinating a lot and through my procrastination, had the idea of what I wanted to write about. So take that, people who say you should get up at 5 a.m. and always have a plan. <laughs> That's my anti-capitalist agenda for the day. Okay, so let's get right into it. This one is not too long, and then we will get into Rex. Pulling levers. I've gotten into the bad habit of deleting Instagram stories after I post them. Three from recent memory. A flash of me lifting my shirt up to reveal a ridiculous banana bikini. A video of me dancing alone in my apartment to a pop song, muted and scored with classical music to make me look like someone who died 50 years ago. A series of memes wherein I overlaid photos of animals with text that indicated I hated the internet. All equally stupid, none remotely useful, delete, delete, delete. I never used to do this. I've historically seen deleting as a kind of failure. At being authentic, maybe. Or at least being consistent enough to not renege on a decision you've ostensibly made of sound mind. 
I've only ever archived three Instagram photos from my feed because I felt they were misunderstood. I'm pretty sure this places me squarely in the millennial generation, known to hoard our internet output as if it were a time capsule, compared to our younger counterparts, known for whittling their accounts down to only the most relevant information. One of my distant cousins only ever has between 10 and 20 photos on her Instagram feed, which change regularly. I'm sure the real shit is elsewhere, hidden from nosy people like me. My feed, meanwhile, has 1,216 public posts dating back to 2011. A few eras of my internet life are gone. My old MySpace account, decorated with embarrassing photoshops, an old Tumblr I panic-deleted when I was 19. But most of it is out there. Old blogs, try-hard posts, bad writing, even if I'd never willingly guide someone to it. Something about this feels right to me. As if by refusing to hide my former self, I'm standing by my right to publicly evolve, and by extension, I'm preserving the right for others. Or at least that's what I tell myself. On a creative level, I love reading undercooked writing from writers I now think are brilliant. It gives me hope to bear witness to the arc, rather than just hear about it once it's been mythologized in an interview about, quote, the creative process. Real canon is more inspiring, and I appreciate people brave enough to leave their early work up. Not sure it makes sense to apply this moral framework to my, quote, work from 2012, but that's what I've done. Thus, my rule has been, don't delete. Live with our stupid internet choices like we live with any choice we've made in our lives, whether it's an outfit we wore or a thing we said or a place we went. So maybe we wouldn't do the same thing now, but that's just how life works, doesn't it? Shouldn't we be allowed to disagree with our former selves? In fact, wouldn't it be an issue if we didn't? The problem with thinking this way is it implies a stronger parallel between online and offline life than actually exists. No matter how stubborn I am about, quote, embracing the arc, I can't deny that the internet registers as far more flat. We may be able to understand intellectually that a stupid joke was posted 10 years ago, when TikTok was a number one song and everyone was blowing their load for Avatar. The timestamp says as much. But on Twitter, the joke is clear as day, next to the person's current photo and handle as if it were said just now. It feels current. In real life, our memories can't recall a 10-year-old offhand comment with such clarity. We've forgotten or overwritten the information with new context and data. We understand that a lot of time has passed because we lived through it. But online, those barriers don't exist. Your identity is divorced from linear time. It is a readily available mosaic of everything you've ever done. Maybe then, Gen Z, or however you'd define the now cross-generational population of people who hyper-curate their feeds, has it right. The way they approach content is in better harmony with how it's interpreted, as an upload of who you are, timestamp agnostic. Why not delete everything you don't currently stand by if that's how it will be understood by others? Obviously, this is the appeal of Snapchat and Instagram stories. They self-destruct, thus saving you the trouble. The journalist and prolific tweeter Elizabeth Brunig has a bot that deletes all her tweets after two weeks. When I first heard that, that digital hoarder in me was horrified. Didn't she want a record of what she'd said, conversations she'd had, articles she'd posted? But the more I thought about it, the more I got it. The trend of disappearing content is a response to the fact that the internet is functionally similar to a printing press, providing ideas with a permanent home, while being used more like a casual everyday forum. The utility and its medium are incongruent, and manufactured ephemerality is trying to address that. Still, I resist it. I don't want everything online to self-destruct. I don't like that the most impulsive content is now gone in 24 hours, and I resent that this has imbued anything posted to the feed with an air of importance, 
or more accurately, performance. I've never really wanted my internet presence to, quote, represent me like a one-sheet around who I am. I find that stressful. As an increasing number of my followers are strangers to me, it's made me more aware of the gap that exists between who I am online, much softer, less goofy, more careful, than I am offline. It's as if I'm a muted version of myself in 2D, self-self-conscious and censored. That's the insecurity that drove me to post those three stories I ended up deleting. I hoped they might show a looser side of me. And then I became certain, ironically, that they felt forced. There are some things we simply can't transmit digitally. How we behave in conversation, how much we roll our eyes, the way our faces move, how we dance in a crowd. All the visceral information that fills out a person. Our accounts are meant to reflect us, but posting is an entirely different form of expression, bringing out different sides of different people. In some ways, you can do so much more to express yourself online than you can in person, and in other ways, so much less. And as much as we're aware of the gap that exists within ourselves, it's easy to forget to appreciate it in others. It's the digital equivalent of, quote, we judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their behavior. I know that you can't really understand me based on my Instagram, we might think, but I completely understand you based on yours. I'm sure my increased focus on this has come with developing a following, but I also think it's increased for everyone as the Venn diagram of presumed identity and online presence has moved closer to a circle. And especially as the stakes of who we are online have been raised by our inability to interact in person. In this way, I guess I don't really disagree with hyper-curators. We're merely responding to the same insufficiency in different ways. I'd imagine most people don't really want to be summed up by their shit posts. If the original promise of the internet was to connect us to more people— The challenge now is to remember it can only do that to an extent, or through a very particular type of lens. I'll never forget interviewing a communication scholar years ago who told me that humans evolved to communicate and cooperate in person using not just words, but tone, context, and body language. She explained that when phones were invented, there was a barrier to understanding because facial expressions were lost, and when email became a primary mode of connection, tone was lost, and when talking to strangers online became the status quo, context was lost. Our tools have evolved faster than our biology. In other words, we are not ready. Weird, because honestly, things seem to be working out. Anyway, it's easy to shrug off social media anxiety as silly, or to assume that worrying about how we're coming off online makes us vapid. And there is something undeniably narcissistic about it. But social belonging is at the center of society, and has been since the beginning of it. Humans fear ostracism more than death. Whether we're extremely online or not, we're making a choice about how we participate in modern life that has real social implications. The pandemic has, of course, brought this into sharper relief, with our sloppy way of digital cooperation bringing about meaningful political movements as much as mass conflict. I'm still convinced we'd all fight way less in real life. The question is, how do we adapt to the fact that the internet isn't a digital reflection of the physical world, but a paradigm shift away from it? I don't think my hope that we'll all start giving each other the benefit of the doubt is remotely realistic nor do I find it existentially satisfying to edit ourselves into oblivion. What do you think is the solution? It will be fascinating to see how the internet evolves, and a miracle if it even manages to before we light the whole thing on fire. Anyone's guess as to which comes first. Okay, that's it for the written portion, and if you're curious as to which of my old and cringy Instagrams I included in the piece, check out the written version as they are sprinkled throughout.
15 things I consumed this week. Number one, this week's small good thing is this amazing essay by Jasmine Hughes in Essence. Essence is actually a retail site, but something I learned when I went freelance is that there are a lot of writers out there who secretly love writing for um, like brand blogs because there are way less editorial um, sort of like guidelines and guardrails. And so sometimes there is really secretly good writing um, in kind of like branded mags, which is kind of counterintuitive. But I've actually known about Essences for a while because it's edited by Haley Melodic. And Haley is a great writer and editor. And I've read a lot of great pieces on Essence because of her. Um, But I also love Jasmine Hughes and I follow her stuff on Twitter and This piece is about her learning to skateboard during quarantine. I love New York skate culture. I also love the idea of trying to penetrate it and being really new and trying something so out of your comfort zone during such a strange time. Um, The piece was really great. I highly recommend. I'm not going to quote any of it because I just feel like it's better if you read it in Jasmine's voice. Number two, the definition of the word palimpsest which for a long time I thought was palimpest, and now I resent the extra S. But anyway, it's a manuscript or piece of writing material on which the original writing has been effaced to make room for later writing, but which of traces remain. It's most often used metaphorically, as in a palimpsest of identity. Number three, what you lose when you gain a spouse. This is a piece in The Atlantic by Wendy Len Catrone. Catron? I'm not sure how to say her name. It's packaged as a case against marriage. I think of it more as a research piece into some of the effects of having marriage be like an organizing principle for society. Um, Avi and I have been talking a little bit about what we want. Um, We've talked about marriage a lot and we've talked about getting married for years now, but we feel a little bit uncertain about whether it's right for us. Um, We joked about like just getting married when we're 50, just like for fun as a bit. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure what we're going to do, but we are really committed to each other. So it's not really a question of how committed we are or like whether we believe in making that kind of commitment. It's just more about the institution itself and who it leaves out, and what it means for our culture to be sort of centered by it. So um, I found this piece really interesting to think about, and I'm always looking for um, new ways of like looking at this topic since it's one of those things that most of us are indoctrinated with at a very young age. So it's taken me some unlearning to look at it more critically and think about it as a choice I can make or not make and um, one that can be sort of separate from my commitment to another person. Number four, one packet of Otagi spicy gin ramen while writing this newsletter. Number five, Dakota Johnson's extremely good home tour for Architectural Digest it came out in March of this year, and I somehow missed it um, until my friend Amon posted it on her story. And I have like a weird fascination and affection for Dakota Johnson. Obviously was not a fan of Fifty Shades, or rather like didn't read the books and only saw like half of the movie as a joke. But 
I love her bangs <laughs> and I love her kind of stoned affect and I don't really understand what she represents in pop culture, but I'm just drawn to her. So I was really excited to see that she had a very popular home tour for Arc Digest that's kind of unlike most celebrity home tours you've seen and that it's genuinely um, homey and personal and I don't know if I would say quirky. It's not that eccentric in that way, but it's a beautiful home, honestly. <laughs> and it has a lot of personal touches and personality and warmth. And it's just like stands in stark contrast to the like weird white palaces of the Kardashians. So um, actually, speaking of which, apparently Kendall Jenner also had a really popular home tour with Arc Digest and it was beloved for some of the same reasons as Dakota's. So um, I guess her aesthetic is not the same as her sister's. But if you're interested in this kind of um, unnecessary content, uh, highly recommend. Number six is an essay by Asad Hader in Salon. It's called How Calling Someone a Class Reductionist Became a Lefty Insult. I was really interested in reading um, his take on this because I am a big proponent of emphasizing class where it's often left out. And um, it's something I've become like increasingly focused on in my own education and critical thinking and um Obviously, there are some people who don't like reducing every problem to class, and he wanted to sort of find a middle ground between between those two perspectives. And ultimately, that's what he did. He really talked about how you can't talk about race without class, and you can't talk about class without race. And I, I really appreciated his measured approach to addressing both, um, both sides' concerns. Number seven is another tattoo by Bowie the Fish Lover which is so perfect it's rude. You'll have to click in to see it, but I want it. Number eight. It's a slideshow about the problems with the cash bail system by Abby Jacobson. I think she did this in collaboration with The Bail Project, which is an organization concerned with abolishing the bail system and also, in the meantime, basically combating the economic disparities that exist within it. It's a really fucked up system, so if you're not really sure about how it works, I found this really um, digestible and useful, and if you have a little bit of extra money this month, um, consider The Bail Project as a great place to donate. Number nine is a conversation between Tavi Jevonson and Natasha Stagg. It was for Interview Magazine. Um, it was actually done in October 2019. I think it was linked somewhere else, which is why I ended up reading it now, but... Um, it has some overlap with what I wrote about this week. It's about social media and identity. I guess I was sort of in a particular headspace when I read this and wrote this, but um, I just love both of these women and I was interested to hear what they had to say. It was also strange to read something that was not even a year old, but had no mention of the pandemic. Um, so if you're looking to do a little time hop, uh, I thought this was a really good read. I'll read a little quote that I put in the newsletter from Natasha Stagg. Quote, I'm interested in people with multiple personas because I think they have some sort of strange insight into the future. They seem psychic about what's actually going on and where we're headed. I think it's not a coincidence that the splintering of ourselves is coinciding with trans awareness. It's a lot easier to understand having an identity that is not part of your physical appearance. End quote. Number 10 is Mac Miller's posthumous album Circles. Avi put it on the other day while we were drawing, 
And then I was so taken with it that I ended up putting it on over and over throughout the rest of the week. Um, it's obviously injected with an additional layer of melancholy because Mac Miller died before it ended up um, coming out. But it is a nice um, and sort of chill and cerebral and sad in the right ways album. So if you are on that wave and you're kind of sick of like Phoebe Bridgers, then I feel like this is a good, but not too far left turn. Number 11 is this line from Ursula Le Guin's book, No Time to Spare, which I've already read, but picked up the other day for a quick peek. Quote, you can't have growth and stability at the same time. Number 12. One pair of Converse high tops in the color parchment. Number 13. This two-minute read by The Cut, in which they photographed and interviewed postal workers in Queens. So much love for the USPS. I really appreciate stories that shine a light on people that aren't typically featured or even spoken about in the media. So really appreciated this timely one. And um, just a good friendly reminder to support the USPS, use the USPS, and... Be kind to your local mail person. Number 14 is an outrageous story about the art and artifice of ghostwriting. It's by Sean Patrick Cooper. It was done for The Baffler. And it had such a gonzo journalism vibe to it. He ended up actually trying to do a ghostwriting assignment and then asking someone else to ghostwrite it for him. And it's just kind of a wild ride that felt like it was written in another decade. So... If you don't know much about ghostwriting, it's a fascinating industry, and I think this piece is a really good look into it. And last but not least, number 15, absolutely no cure for my disease of looking at New York apartments for rent on Street Easy and getting mad. I keep texting Avi links to apartments, and he's like, not sure what I'm implying. <laughs> he's like, do you want to break our lease? Are we moving? Like, what's happening? And I honestly have no explanation. I'm just addicted to looking at apartments and imagining what it would be like to live in them. And I think it has something to do with the fact that I'm desperate for novelty right now, which is understandable, but I'm not sure I'm channeling it in the healthiest direction. But you know what? To each her own when shit is horrible. Feel free to quote me on that. Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for reading and listening. I asked a question in the email I sent along with this podcast that I'm curious to the answer to. So if you have a minute to leave a comment, I'd appreciate it. Otherwise, have an amazing rest of your week. And if it sucks, that's okay too. See you next week. Bye. Smile.